uh, let's take a Bible. Let's open it together. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, first book in the New Testament, Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 22. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter shop and was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held a political office. He did none of the things we usually associate with greatness. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on this earth as much as this one solitary life. Now, we're talking, of course, about Jesus. And the question that we have today that we want to try to answer is exactly who is this person named Jesus who has affected the world more than all the armies and navies and rulers in the history of the world. Now, when it comes to the identity of Jesus, friends, our world is not suffering from a lack of suggestions. We have, for example, modern Jewish thought who says that Jesus was a man, a great man, a rabbi, a teacher, maybe even a prophet. We have the Muslims who say that Jesus was one of Allah's many prophets of whom Muhammad was the greatest. We have the Mormons who say that Jesus Christ was a man who worked his way up to being a God just like you and I can do. We have the Jehovah's Witnesses who say that Jesus was an angel of God, the first created being in the universe. We have the Eastern mystics who say that Jesus was an enlightened soul, a guru, a person who had attained nirvana. We have the humanists who say that Jesus was a great moral and ethical philosopher. We have the Unitarians who say that Jesus was a nice man who, who tried to help people get along in a really tough world. And then, of course, we have people like Albert Schweitzer and many of his so-called scholar buddies who will say that the Jesus Christ that the Bible described never even existed in reality at all. Now, one thing you notice about all these groups, everybody who admits that Jesus really did exist, the one thing they all agree about is that he was a great man. You say, well, Lon, that, that's good, right? Well, sort of. Say, so what do you mean, sort of? Well, it's sort of good because in the very same breath, right underneath the surface, lurks something very subtle. And that is a denial that Jesus is anything more than just a great man. False religions, as different as they may be in so many ways, they all have this one thing in common, and that is they all deny the claim that the Bible makes for Jesus, and that is that Jesus is Jehovah God Himself wrapped in human flesh. Now, folks, this is the issue. This is the issue. All of biblical Christianity rises and falls with the identity of Jesus Christ. If Jesus was not God himself wrapped in human flesh, then his teachings about God are suspect. His information about the afterlife is unreliable. His death on the cross was nothing special. And those of us who have chosen to follow him, we have no more real assurance about our eternal destiny than Stone Age people in Indonesia. Friends, 
If Jesus is not who the Bible says he is, then all of biblical Christianity crumbles. That's what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about in part four spiritual boot camp, who is Jesus? And we spent the first couple weeks establishing, proving, demonstrating that the Bible has evidence to support its claim to be the inspired, inerrant Word of God. And as such, we're going to use this trustworthy book as the source of our data in order to answer this crucial question, who is Jesus? Is he God wrapped in human flesh or is he something else? It's all riding on that. So let's look. Now, the Bible, friends, claims that Jesus was a being with a dual nature, with two natures. First of all, the Bible claims that Jesus was fully human. And as such, he experienced the full range of human nature and human need. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired. He needed sleep. He felt pain. He had to deal with temptation and disappointment and grief. The only difference is that in dealing with all that range of human emotion and need, Jesus never sinned. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. And in his human nature, Jesus was a descendant of David, just the way the Bible promised the Messiah would be. But the reason that he was able to face being a human being and never sinning is because of the other side of his nature that the Bible talks about. And that is that Jesus was not just fully human, he was also fully God. And friends, this dual nature that the Bible tells us about means that Jesus was a creature unique in the history of the universe. There never has been, there never will be another creature in the universe that is like him, Jehovah God himself, but wrapped in human flesh. He is one of a kind. Now, you might say, Lon, I hear what you're saying, but you're sure you, I mean, you know, You guys didn't just make that up. I mean, did Jesus really believe that about himself? Did he really think that about himself? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And to show you, right here, Matthew 22, where I ask you to turn. Here in Matthew chapter 22, the rabbis have been peppering Jesus with all kinds of questions, trying to trip him up, mess him up, make him fall, make him say something that he'd be embarrassed about. And, of course, they couldn't do it. And now that they're done asking him questions... He decides it's time to ask them a question. So, verse 41, chapter 22. And while the Pharisees, the rabbis, were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Here was his question. What do you think about the Messiah, the Christ? Whose son is he? And the rabbis didn't even hesitate. They immediately answered and said, oh, we know the answer to that. That's easy. He is the son of David. 2 Samuel 7 predicts he would be the son of David. Isaiah chapter 11 repeats he'd be the son of David, and on and on and on throughout the Bible. That's clear. He is the son of David. As a matter of fact, the son of David became a formal title for the Messiah in Israel that was interchangeable with the word Messiah. Remember when Jesus rode into the city? Uh, In the triumphal entry, they threw all their cloaks in front of the donkey he was on. Check it out, chapter 21 of Matthew. And they cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David, the Messiah. So, was the answer the rabbis gave wrong? No, it wasn't wrong. It was just incomplete. And Jesus now goes on to ask them a follow-up question aimed at showing them 
that the Messiah was much more than just the human descendant of David. There was another whole side to him. So look at verse 43. And so Jesus said to them, okay, I hear you, but then how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, writing Scripture, Psalm 110, calls the Messiah Lord? For David says, Psalm 110, Messianic Psalm, speaking of the Messiah, all the rabbis agreed to this. The Lord said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So then, verse 45, if David calls him Lord, how in the world can the Messiah be David's son? You understand the question? Now, how many of you here are parents or grandparents? Raise your hand. All right, wonderful. How many of you here call your children or grandchildren Lord? Raise your hand. No. Of course not. We have some children in my family who think it ought to be that way, but we straighten that out real quick in my family, and I hope you do in your family. Of course not. What father, what grandfather have you ever heard who calls his children or his grandchildren Lord? Yes, Lord. Whatever you say, Lord. You really want to do that? Absolutely, Lord. Hot dogs every night. Whatever you say, Lord. Ridiculous. Okay, so you understand Jesus' question. If the Messiah is David's descendant, why in the world does he call him Adon, Hebrew, Lord, a word that is only used of deity and God? Why would he do that? Verse 46. And no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, nobody dared ask him any more questions. They're like, okay, that's it. We're done. Well, we know the answer to this question, don't we? This isn't hard. This is an easy one. We know the answer to this. It's all about the dual nature of the Messiah. Because the answer is that the human part of Jesus was the descendant of David, just the way the Bible said. But the God part of Jesus was the God, the Adon, the Lord of David, just the way David said. It makes perfect sense if you understand what the Bible teaches about the dual nature of Jesus Christ. You say, well, now, Lon, I understand what you're saying about Jesus being the human descendant of David. And I don't have any problem with that. Because these people back then, I mean, they all had the genealogical records. If he hadn't have been a descendant of David, they would have known it. They would have caught him on that. I'm, I'm okay with that. But I've got to tell you, this claim that he's God, I mean, that's a pretty incredible claim. Well, yes, you're right. It is. And the Bible supports that claim and reiterates it everywhere you go in the Bible. Listen, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, talks about Jesus and calls Him our great God and Savior. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, here Jesus is called the Almighty, a word in the Bible that is exclusively used of God and no one else. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says that all the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus in bodily form. All the fullness of God lives in Jesus in bodily form. And I love the exchange between Philip and Jesus in John chapter 14. Philip, one of the disciples, comes to Jesus and says, Lord, show us God the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Well, that was wonderfully nice of him. Just show us God, and we'll be very happy. And what did Jesus say? Listen. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you this long, and you still don't know who I am? Philip, 
He, anyone who has seen me, has seen the Father. Now, is that an amazing comment? Anybody who has seen me, you see me, you see God the Father. It's one and the same, Philip. Don't you understand who I am? How do you make it any clearer than that? You say, well, Lon, okay. So the Bible claims that Jesus is Jehovah God. But that's not the point. The point is, what evidence does the Bible give us to prove that this is really true? Well, let's talk about that. The evidence that the Bible gives us is by point is that the Bible points out to us that Jesus demonstrated all the prerogatives and all of the powers that go with being God. Let me tell you about them. Number one, Jesus had a power over disease and over sickness, the Bible tells us, that only God could have. Jesus walked around healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness in every situation. Who could do that but God? And I love what the man in John chapter 9 said. You know, he was the man born blind and Jesus healed him. And after Jesus healed him, what does the man say? He says, since the beginning of the world, nobody has ever opened the eyes of a man born blind. Who can do this? Well, the answer is only God. Second of all, Jesus had a power not only over disease and sickness that only God could have, but second of all, Jesus had a power over the forces of nature that only God has. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus walked on water. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus was out in the middle of this huge gale in the Sea of Galilee, and He stood up and said, Be quiet. And the wind stopped, and the sea was calm, and the disciples in the boat, you know what they said? They said, what kind of man is this? Who can do this? That even the winds and the waves obey Him. And in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus was walking along one day, saw this fig tree, cursed the fig tree. Fig tree died, shriveled up and died right there on the spot. Who can do something like that? You know, I just moved out of a house where a number of years ago, we planted English ivy. What a mistake. This stuff went everywhere. Went up the wall, up the chimney, up the bushes, up the trees, into the grass. I mean, the stuff was unbelievable. I tried everything I could think of to stop this stuff. I went out there, I sprayed this stuff, I cut this stuff, I pulled this stuff. I even cursed this stuff. Die, die, die. You know what? Didn't die. And you know why I didn't die? Because I'm not God. Jesus walks along, curses his fig tree, boom, things die. Who can do something like that? Third, Jesus had a power over demons that only God could have. The Bible tells us about it. How Jesus cast out demons, cast demons into pigs. And they cowered in fear every time Jesus came around. And in Luke chapter 11, the rabbis even come to Jesus and they say to Jesus, how do you do this? We don't understand. How does a person do this? And I love the answer he gives them. Luke 11, verse 22. He said, when a strong man guards his house, his possessions are safe. But when a stronger person comes along, he overpowers that man and takes all that he has. Jesus said, how do I overcome and overpower demons? It's real simple, fellas. I'm stronger than they are. Now, who in the world can make a statement like that and back it up but God Himself? Fourth, Jesus had a power over sin that only God could have. I want you to flip over a couple of pages to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 2. 
It's page 708, if you're using our copy of the Bible. Page 708. And uh, Mark chapter 2, while you're turning, let me tell you what's happening here. Jesus is in a house in Capernaum. It's real crowded. And these folks show up with this paralyzed man, this quadriplegic man. He's on a stretcher, but they can't get him through the crowd to actually get him to Jesus. So what they do is they go up on the roof, cut a big old hole in the roof, and they lower him down on ropes. That's where we pick up the story. Verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the rabbis were sitting there and they said to themselves, How can this fellow talk like this? Now, I mean, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, were they right? Were they right? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Finally, the rabbis get something absolutely, utterly correct. How in the world could anybody forgive sin but God alone? We're all agreed on that, right? Okay, now let's go on. And when Jesus knew what they were thinking in their hearts, he said to them, why are you thinking this? Which is easier, verse 9, which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say to him, get up, take up your mat, your stretcher, and walk. Now let's stop and answer Jesus' question. Which is easier to say? To say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up your mat, you're healed, and walk out of here? Well, folks... It's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. You know why? Because who's going to check you out? Who's going to ever know if you dearly did it? Who's going to ever know if it really took? How in the world can you ever be sure whether it really happened? That's easy to say. But hey, you say to a quadriplegic man lying on a stretcher, get up, take up your stretcher and walk home, and it's only going to be a matter of a few seconds for every single person knows whether or not you did what you just said. So which is harder? Isn't it harder to say to the man that's paralyzed, take up your mat and walk out of here? Jesus said, but watch. Look what he said. But so that you may know, I love this, so that you may know that I, the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sin. I'm going to do the harder. And if I do the harder, you know I can do the easier. And he said to the man, I tell you, take up your mat and go home. And the man got up, took up his stretcher, and walked out of there in full view. Now, this man may have had trouble getting an aisle to go in, but I guarantee he had no trouble getting an aisle to go out. And and he picked up his stretcher and walked out of there, and Jesus said, Now, if I can do that, that's the harder. You know I can do the easier. I want you to know I have the authority to forgive sins on earth. What did the rabbis say? Who can forgive sin but God alone. And the people said, we have never seen anything like this. Well, of course not. How often is it you meet God walking around? Of course you'd never seen anything like this. And, and, if, and how could Jesus tell the woman at the well everything she'd ever done if he wasn't God? And how could Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead if he wasn't God? But friends, the crowning proof of all is the resurrection of Jesus himself. Romans chapter 1, verse 3 talking about Jesus, says, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who was declared with power to be the Son of God, to be deity, how was he declared to be God? By his resurrection from the dead. 
The purpose of the resurrection of Jesus, among other things, was to vindicate to us, to prove to us beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is deity just the way he claimed. Friends, no other religion, no other philosophical system in the world claims an empty tomb for its leader. Not Buddha, not Confucius, not Muhammad, not Joseph Smith, not Rabbi Schneerson, not Karl Marx, not George Bernard Shaw or any of his humanist buddies. And the reason is because none of them ever claimed to be Jehovah God in the flesh. But that is what Jesus claimed to be. That was what he said he is. And to prove it, he rose from the dead as proof positive that he's telling us the truth. You say, now, Lon, wait a minute. You're an educated man. You mean to tell me there's not the slightest doubt in your mind about the resurrection really happening? Not the slightest. You say, well, how can that be? I'll tell you, it's real simple. I am an educated man, and I understand human nature, and that's why I know the resurrection has to be true. Because, friends, in, in the first century... When the events of the New Testament were still recent history, Christianity could have been stopped dead in its tracks if someone had simply disproven or discredited the resurrection of Jesus. Everything else is over. Produce the body, give a good explanation of what happened there at the tomb, and Christianity is done. There is no Christianity. And believe me, there were opponents of Christianity who wanted to stop it, wanted to bring it to an end, wanted to end it dead in its tracks. They tried to do it, but friends, listen. They, they persecuted the preachers and even killed the preachers, but the one thing they were never able to do was to discredit the resurrection. And I'll tell you why. Because the resurrection happened just the way the Bible says it happened. And that's why they couldn't disprove it and they couldn't discredit it. And friends, if that's true, then Jesus is Almighty God, wrapped in human flesh, just the way He said He is. Now, if you're here and you've never trusted Christ in a real and personal way, this is really important for you to know. Because you know what we love to say around here, follow a dead Savior and you'll end up just like Him. And, and all these other people we named, Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, all these other people, they're dead, friends. And they're dead people pointing you up a dead-end street. We are, we're not presenting a dead Savior to you. We're presenting a living, risen Messiah who's pointing you up the street to eternal life and to real eternity with God. We're not pointing you with a dead Savior down a dead-end street. And if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus in a real and personal way, friends, we don't want you heading down a dead-end street. Jesus said, because I live for eternity, those who follow me will live also. We want you to be one of those people. We hope you'll think about that. Well, let's summarize. What have we learned today? We've learned that Jesus in the Bible claimed to be Jehovah God wrapped in human flesh. That all the rest of the Bible reiterates that and that there's proof. His miracles, His power over disease, His power over the forces of nature, His power over demons, His power over sin, and His own personal resurrection demonstrate Jesus had the prerogatives and the power that go with being God alone. He is what He claimed to be. Now, all that leads us to a really important question. And everybody knows the question, right? So take a deep breath. You ready? Are you ready? Yes. All right, ready? Here we go. Come on now. One, two, three. No, ah, wonderful. 
You say, Lon, so what? You say, I'm a follower of Christ. I mean, I've already crossed this bridge. I've already done this in my life. I already believe this about Jesus. I mean, I owe us. So what difference does it make to me, really? I mean, I'm, I'm here. You're preaching to the choir, you know? Well, the choir. Thank you very much. So, um, so what difference does it make for me? Well, you know, there's a wonderful verse in the Bible, Philippians chapter 2, and here's what it says. It says, every knee will bow because of who Jesus is, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, it's true as a follower of Jesus Christ, 30 years ago, I already crossed this bridge. I already accepted him as my Savior. I already acknowledged him as Lord and surrendered my life to him as Lord. Maybe you did too. But let me tell you something really interesting. Do you know in 1865, when Robert E. Lee, the Civil War came to an end, Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse to General Grant. Richmond fell to the Union armies. They took Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, put him in chains and put him in jail. The Confederacy was, was surrendered. But you know what's interesting? If you read history, you'll find that there were still little bands that went on fighting. There were still little pockets of resistance that didn't immediately close up and surrender. They went on fighting guerrilla warfare for quite some time in the South. And you know what I decided? I was thinking about it this week. I decided, I realized this week, that I'm a lot like the Confederacy in 1865. Maybe you're not, but I am. 98% of me is surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Richmond has fallen. Jefferson Davis is in chains. Robert E. Lee has gone home to private life. But there's still some parts of me where I'm, where, where I'm still got pockets of resistance in my life. Still parts of me where I'm determined I still want to do it my way, and I still am carrying on guerrilla warfare with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, you may not be like that, but I am. And I mean this week, the Spirit of God just whooped up on me and said, Lon, 98% is not good enough. I don't expect you to be perfect. But I don't want you to be satisfied with 98%. I want all of you. Remember the old quote, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And, and there's a lot of truth to that. And I just got to tell you, for me, in light of who Jesus is, Lord of all, man, I, God just impressed on me this week. It is incumbent on me to seek to bring every pocket of resistance in my life into submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's hard because some of these areas, I mean, they're the last few outposts, you know. It's hard. Now, if you're like I am, maybe you've got 98% of you all taken care of, but there's still a little bit of guerrilla warfare going on between you and the Lordship of Christ. You say, well, Lon, what are you talking about? What kind of pockets of resistance are you talking about? Well, like um, how we speak. You know, the Bible is very clear. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, that our speech is to be seasoned with salt. It's to be with grace. You know, how many of us go out into the workplace and say things and speak curse words and other things that we got no business saying? It really bothers me when I run up against people who come to this church and I'm in private conversation with them and I hear language come out of their mouth. I mean, wait a minute, what is this? And gossip and all kinds of nasty backbiting stuff. I mean, what is this? And, and, and how about the way we act out there? How about the way we drive? How about our sexual conduct, whether it's our premarital sexual conduct, if we're not married or our faithfulness to our spouse or how we look at and think about the opposite sex or the, the adult movie channels in the hotels when we're traveling? I mean, come on now. 
How about our personal ethics and the way we live each and every day? Tell them I'm not a hoe. But what is that? Or our work habits when the boss isn't around. Or the movies we go to, the magazines that we pick up and read, the way we spend our money, or the way we make our money. I mean, is there integrity with the way we make it? And the way we fill out our taxes when we're hurt. Do we forgive the way God tells us to, or do we harbor bitterness? I mean, there's all kinds of little pockets of resistance that can exist in a follower of Christ's life. And today I want to do... I want to give you a challenge. It's the same challenge the Spirit of God gave me this week. And that is to take a really hard look at your life if you're a follower of Christ. And ask a question, where am I harboring enclaves that are holding out against the Lordship of Jesus Christ? That are engaged in guerrilla warfare? Where I'm determined I'm going to do it my way. Friends, 98% not good enough. We've got to strive to the best of our ability. To make Jesus Christ the Lord of everything we are, everything we have, everything we do. And maybe we'll never get there perfectly, but we can't be satisfied with less. Are you prepared to run up the white flag in these areas of your life? These are hard questions, but they're questions in light of who Jesus is that we need to be asking ourselves and we need to be responding to. So I want us to bow our heads now and let's close our eyes together. And I want to give you just a moment or two for you to do business with God. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to ask you to take a moment and talk with God about the areas of your life that He points out to you are still pockets of resistance to the Lordship of Christ. And if you're willing to ask for His help in running up the white flag and bringing those areas into submission to His Lordship, then why don't you take this time right now to tell him that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know we're just human. And the ability to subjugate our willful human nature to the Lordship of Christ is a challenge. It's a big challenge. And just when we think we're doing really well, something pops up and... And we've got another little area that we need to deal with. But Lord, my prayer is that you would motivate us today and encourage us today that if you are who you say, that the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of our life is non-negotiable. Now, Father, many people here today have talked to you about areas of their life. And they're all different. Many of them have asked for help in bringing these areas into submission. My prayer is that you would honor what they've done, that you would be pleased with their heart. And God, in response, you would grant them the power through your Spirit to bring these areas more and more to the place where the white flag is up permanently and that area is surrendered to Jesus Christ. Help us wipe out every pocket of resistance or at least make that our goal that we might truly be people who live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Father, work in our hearts and our lives and authentically make us people that when the world looks at us, they see what a follower of Christ ought to be. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
God bless you. Thanks for being here.